Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Tej Talks podcast. On today's show, I have Natalie Gascoigne. She is a Mancunian, right, based up north. That's a bit Yorkshire, I think. And uh, she works part-time whilst sourcing and buying properties for herself. She buys HMOs and flips. And she has made some nice profit, a tidy, nice, tiny profit from some of these deals. So we also talk about, you know, how to be a good sourcer. We talk about, you know, the kind of opportunities there are in sourcing deals on that, you know, people maybe don't necessarily think of at first. And we also talk about the realities of property investment and the difference between a mentor and an education course. So I hope you find this useful. Uh, Just to let you know, I have more deals and more properties that are open for investment and funding. So if you want to get involved on an earn and learn or even on a a straight loan, give me a shout or visit my website, tej-talks.com or my investment website, which is tejinvests.com. Com. Thank you. Natalie, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I'm my voice is 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 running out again. Um I'm like half sick again, but I am excited to hear your story because I don't know too much about what you do. I, I see you on Instagram, so I see sort of what you're doing and kind of how, how you're doing it, but I don't know the specifics, but I think that today you are going to be able to share a lot of value to the listeners. And, and I think what we're going to talk about later is is the realities of property investing, which you've experienced. And I think it's good that we can both discuss that with the listeners. But before we get into all that, what were you doing? Or if, you know, I think I believe you're still part-time. What sort of were you or are you doing before you discovered property? And then what led you to property? So I worked, or no, I am working, as you say, in uh, music and sports uh, marketing, so agency side for about eight years now. It's a really exciting area to be a part of. My first four and a bit years were in London, and that's obviously kind of a huge hub for that. I worked on lots of brilliant campaigns, doing kind of activations at music festivals like Glastonbury and B Festival, you know, part of the team that brokered the deal for Nissan when they sponsored Team GB in uh, Rio 2016. Just lots of exposure to some amazing brands, amazing companies and, and great campaigns. And, you know, you're in your 20s, you're working so hard, uh, lots of weekend working, lots of trips away, but it's super fun. And marketing agencies are very social spaces. I made lots of friends there. There's lots of kind of social secretaries who organise nights out. Um, so kind of to be kind of, I guess, younger and in my 20s, it was just a great, a great career uh, to be starting in. Then I moved back to Manchester in 2015, which is where I'm from. Big up, big up the second city. And I was, to be honest, I was a bit worried that the marketing opportunities, I guess, wouldn't be here. A lot of people in London kind of, you know, you mentioned Manchester and they're like, oh, Manchester is so small. (laughs) But no, I was totally wrong. Um, I got a job working for the Champions League with UEFA for two years and it was just great. And since then, you know, my marketing career in Manchester has been great too. I always used to say that marketing and property 
are so different and that when I started doing both careers it was um you know this huge change and this this massive leap I've definitely come to realize that there's a lot of skills that I was doing in marketing that definitely you know transfer over so particularly agency side you have to be so commercially aware and you know you're constantly balancing the budget with what the client expects and kind of the client's end product. And that's very similar, you know, to doing property developments. You're constantly balancing your refurb costs with how it looks, you know, and you can't overspend, but likely you need to spend enough so that your property looks looks great and it'll rent and and sell quickly. So yeah, there's lots of kind of trans- transferable things and, and ways that I've realized later in life it, it did make a big difference when I started in property. Hmm. And then what, what led you to property? Did you read a book? go to a seminar see a friend buying property or I guess a bit of all of those things I just got a property when I was still working in marketing so well basically through very kind of difficult and unexpected circumstances I received some inheritance quite early in life when I was 24 so that inheritance kind of sat in the bank for a few years I was still in London then I couldn't you know buy anything in London with that I did a few kind of backpacking tours and stuff with it but generally I left it alone you know I wasn't gonna kind of waste that money um, and waste it away and then when I moved back to Manchester and um, my now husband his uh, his best friend is an extremely successful developer in Leeds um, and he kind of said to me you know Natalie you really need to look at you know taking property investment seriously you know you guys don't own your own home yet we you know we don't have any kids and he said you know you you can build yourself up a nice portfolio in a few years you know you guys can buy your own house with you know with the money that you've made and at first I was just I really really wasn't sure you know it took me a while to think about it I am no one in my family is from property you know no one's in the building trade like no elements of it I'd ever been exposed to before so it felt very risky I was constantly thinking you know how do I know the property is going to rent and the idea of taking out even a buy-to-let mortgage I was just thinking oh gosh and if it doesn't rent and now I've got all these interest payments and it was I was just very very risk averse back then but then he made me an offer that I really couldn't refuse which was I bought a a flat a little studio flat really cute little little nice flat in Leeds right outside the city centre and I bought it off plan from him and then what he offered me was it was kind of it was the usual that a lot of people get get offered now it was three years guaranteed rent but he also offered a buyback clause and where he would buy it off me for just over actually the price I paid for it three years later and he basically he offered me that because he knew the market would go up uh, because he knows it so well and I just thought well there's no risk in that I've got this guaranteed rent for three years and then I get my money back anyway so I was getting an extra kind of went ahead with that Uh, it was 64,000 in cash that I bought this flat for and I was getting around 450 a month net rent from that and I was still working so that was kind of a nice definitely like extra income boost on the side and I guess from that, it just made me take it all a bit, a bit more seriously. And but then again, I don't actually call that my first deal. So then, following that one, I um, I got in contact with uh, his business partner in Warrington, uh, who sources a lot for a lot of investors. Uh, and I mentioned that I kind of want to buy a second one. And at this point, I never actually thought I'm going to be an investor myself. I always thought this is something I'm going to do on the side and always, you know, use sourcing agents and not really get any true learnings myself, but just see this income coming in and keep it very, very passive. And 
the deal that I actually got from him, which is probably the best deal I've done and the best deal I probably will do, was um, it was a buy to let in Warrington. The purchase price was £39,950, so £50 less than the stamp duty. And it was a complete wreck, like just needed everything doing to it. Um, The refurb and the fees was about 37,000 in total. Whoa. Yeah, and then all in, we're looking at around, let's say, just under 78. Um, and the idea of, of that was was originally to flip it, but it's a really good rental area in Warrington. Um, I like the idea of having kind of the more rental income coming through than like just the big chunk of, of flip profit. So I refinanced it at 110K. Nice. So the mortgage loan on that was 82,500 which gave me a profit of 5,000 on what I've spent. (laughs) (laughs) And it rents at 5,75 a month. So that gives me net around 2,75 to 300 a month. And I still own 25% of the building. I mean, you know, as first deals go, that's pretty awesome. I think Mm. like that's the kind of deal that everyone is looking for and everyone is like, where can we get deals like that? How? So you, you had this sort of off, you know, this new build investment before, which is a lot more straightforward than a, a 37K refurb for sure. How did you know that this deal that this guy was sourcing for you was was going to be good? And how did you have the confidence to kind of go through with a £37,000 sort of refurb in costs when it was your your sort of second or your first real deal? So being completely honest, I basically went against all the advice that I give now and I um, didn't, I don't think I, I barely analysed that deal. I knew nothing about building works. So looking at his um, refurb costs, I didn't know at the time if it was accurate, if it wasn't, but I did know that the person who, who sourced it for me, I knew him very well. And so I guess I put a lot of trust in the fact that he had analysed this deal, otherwise he wouldn't he wouldn't be sourcing on um, on behalf of this of this builder. And but yeah, I guess in that way it, it was still very naive. I wouldn't do that now, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone doing now. But it was quite you know fortuitous that it, it did work out like that. But that that was kind of how I came across that one. And then how did you fund the purchase and the refurb of that one? The purchase was cash. And then the refurb was cash again. And then it was kind of shared with a loan from a family friend. Okay, so you were using an investor and your own money. Yeah, exactly. But I guess at the time, I didn't really know, understand the concept of angel investment or anything. It was more, I was talking to somebody about it. And, um, you know, they said that they would lend it me. And I I think my return I gave them was something like 4%. Yeah. So at the time, obviously all these terms and processes and strategy around that, I didn't have, I just kind of went for this deal through pure trust and it, it did end up working out luckily. Wow. Okay. But it could have gone south. Uh, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it could have gone very badly. Yeah, there's a lot of sources out there who, yeah, potentially that that wouldn't have worked out as it, as it was. So you had your first deal, you were still working full time. Yeah. At this point in time, were you thinking, right, I need to get out my job and do this all the time? Or where was your head at? So then, um, so while that deal, before that deal had completed, while the refurb was still happening, I, um, I guess I just wanted to take more of an interest in it. And um, kind of one of the key property training yeah, national companies. They were doing an introductory course in Manchester, mm-hmm. um, one of those three-day ones that quite a lot of them offer. Um, and so I signed up to that. Um, that was what, yeah, when I was still working full-time. 
and um, went along to it. And honestly, by the end of the weekend, I was just sold. I really, really um, thought, you know, this isn't something I just want to do sidelines. This is something I want to get a lot more involved in and spend a lot more of my time learning. And that property training kind of cover, they cover the very fundamental basics of how to analyse like a buy-to-let deal and, you know, how to work out ROI, how to work out if it's a good area. Um, So things that, you know, you can can find online fairly easily and then... and if you read a book, you'd, you'd, you'd know as well. But learning it, you know, around other people and being able to ask questions obviously helps too. Um, but then a lot of the three-day courses obviously spent with them trying to sell you the bigger the bigger training course, which is, you know, 20K or over. And I was, I was actually seriously considering it. But then I went away because I still, still have my full-time job. Um, and I gave it some kind of real thoughts. Um, and it wasn't until around six months later when... I was actually, I was abroad at the time. And um, I think when you go away, you kind of, and you step, you step away from your kind of everyday habits and your everyday job, you think about what you're going home to and kind of, you know, how you're living your life and, you know, I guess what, what you'd change. And I just, part of me, it gave me kind of the headspace to think about the fact that I've got a real opportunity here to learn a brand new career. I'm still, you know, very young I've got plenty of time to do it in and to potentially make mistakes that can happen and so I went back I handed in my notice at my current job and since then I've been doing property part-time so that was autumn 2017 and since then I've been doing property part-time and um, marketing part-time and it's exactly split so I do two I do two days then three days so it's exactly two and a half days a week that I do in marketing still. Mm. And your your employer were happy with that and cool with that? Yeah. So, well, I left my current employer at the time. I don't know if you've heard of um, Social Chain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Their founder's like really active on um, Instagram, isn't he? Yeah, Steve Bartlett. Yeah, yeah. he's he's done brilliantly. Um, yes, yeah, so I was head of music there, which was an, a great job. And it was it was a really tough decision, actually. But because, um, you know, I'm sure you know, they're growing at a, a massive rapid space to have that kind of role you can't really do that part-time mm. um you know you need to give it everything so I knew that I couldn't stay there so I I went um I moved I worked part-time for my husband's company for about a year uh he does web development and then this year I've moved over to a more kind of boutique music marketing agency as one of the directors there ah, okay and so this was autumn 2017 so when you you made this decision to go part-time to take property more seriously mm. how because a lot of beginners and a lot of people are in this sort of stage right now where they're like there's 101 strategies they all sort of might work around me yeah what strategy do i do so what advice could you give to people and that maybe you sort of the things you did or used at the time to like how can you form a strategy so when i first started it as you know my career I and my initial thoughts just went to buy to let um, I think that's because both of the deals that have been sourced for me were buy to lets and um, when I went on the course a lot of that was focused actually around you know the buy to let strategy and I also had I also was refinancing the flat in Leeds and I was refinancing the house the buy to let in Warrington and um, so I knew I had some capital and um, so I could afford you know to buy buy to lets put a deposit down and either do the refurb uh, you know along alongside someone else or if it was quite small than that myself but 
so at the time, you know, I guess I was quite fortunate that I did start with, with a bit of capital to be able to invest. So strategies, I guess, like rent to rent and things like that, I I honestly had just never come across them. I didn't come across them, I think, until maybe last year, the start, yeah, the start of last year. So I initially started doing, well, looking for buy-to-let properties and I was looking everywhere. I had no kind of focus or aim because I'd, I'd never, you know, I'd never done this before. I was out on my own and I was driving, you know, all around Greater Manchester and um, all the different towns and villages, looking at these rundown houses, making loads and loads of offers that were all rejected. You know, I was ranking up the mileage on my husband's um, PCP car. <laughs> he definitely wasn't <laughs> happy about that. Um, and yeah, and so for kind of two or three months, I was extremely unproductive and it was because I had no, I had, like you say, no real kind of process or strategy because I'd just kind of gone for it um, and it was also extremely lonely so I'd gone from working in like a huge vibrant agency with lots of kind of young high energy people to being completely alone in my car all day looking at houses in the rain so it was a massive kind of you know reality came crashing down on me I thought that you know two months in I'd have you know five by to lets about to happen and I'd be making you know over a thousand pounds a month net cash flow scene but that definitely wasn't the reality <laughs> um so then I made probably the best one of the best moves I've done and I approached um Danny Inman mm-hmm. so I don't know if you've heard of Danny but he yeah. um so he's the business partner with my property develop the property developer friend in Leeds who I initially got him, me introduced yeah. yeah exactly so that's kind of the link there and I just said you know will you be my mentor you privately mentor me and he said yes so I've been working with him ever since. Um, we meet up every month for around two hours and we go through, we kind of analyse all my deals, uh, look at what I'm looking at and I can kind of ask him for help in between, you know, within reason if, if something comes up. Um, and I guess kind of sitting down with him, it, it really helped me kind of, you know, figure out this strategy because one thing that when I was looking for buy to let that was constantly at the back of my mind is that obviously my salary had halved because I went part time um, and my salary had literally exactly halved so I needed to kind of make up that um that money because I didn't want to sacrifice if I could help it the lifestyle that I had so and I realized that by the time a buy to let deal you've bought it you've refurbed it you've got tenants in it's going to be maybe six months six and then you get and then you refinance it but it'll be let's say it's about five maybe five months to start seeing that cash flow in and that cash flow might be, you know, 200 to 250 pounds a month. Um, so for me, it just it just wasn't quick enough. Um, but also similarly, I didn't feel comfortable looking for HMOs, even though I knew from um, things I'd seen online and meeting people at property events, property networking events, that that was really where I needed to be to build up this cash flow. And Danny, obviously, he, you know, he is an expert in HMOs. That's, that's how he started his portfolio. So he really taught me um, how to analyse HMO deals, what to look for, um, things like looking creatively at a house and even though it might not look like a potential HMO, you know, what can you do to that house um, to make it work? Um, so I guess from working with him, I immediately changed my strategy onto HMOs. And that first year was focused all around, yeah, HMOs and also flips. Okay. So you know, in that, so how, how long have you been in properties? About a year and a half? No, two years? Uh, yeah, just coming up to two years. But then I guess the first two or three months was a massive, yeah, a big, that was the big learning curve. Mm. 
So in, in the past two years, how many houses have you flipped and how many HMOs have you bought? In the past two years, I've bought, well, I've been involved in over 12 deals. And that's because I also kind of saw some project manage now for other investors. So what I found was I was going out doing a lot of sourcing when I was on my property days uh, and over the weekends. And um, at the time, I had quite high ROI targets because um, in terms of the capital I had to invest, I obviously needed each deal to stack up to a certain ROI so that I could get enough money out and move on to the next one, for example. So I was seeing a lot of deals and a lot of potential HMOs that didn't meet my ROI targets, but that were still working out at maybe kind of, you know, 18% ROI, 22% ROI. And so I started basically packaging these up and then working with someone else who had quite a large sourcing database and they would split the fee with me to basically get access to their buyers. So I started doing that and then I became kind of fully registered and compliant as a sourcer myself. And then from going to networking events and getting referrals, um, I've got kind of my own um, bank of investors looking for deals now. I work with people direct too. Mm, Okay. And, you know, when it comes to sourcing, I think sourcers, you know, as a general, kind of have a bad name in the the property industry. Um, I'm not going to say it's warranted. I'm not going to say it's unwarranted. I think, like with anything, a few bad apples make the whole uh, basket of apples look bad. In your opinion, for people who want to to be deal sources, what advice would you give them so that they don't become like bad apples and they do it correctly from the start? Through all my sourcing, I've always had this kind of um, motto that I would never source on a deal that I wouldn't do myself. I've, I've actually joined a lot of sourcing databases purely to look at what other people are sourcing and to see the kind of quality of deals going out. And similarly, when I meet potential investors who you know want, want to work with me or want me to find them a deal, I also say to them, if you get any other deals from other sources, because I know that they're obviously talking to other people, and if they're in and around Greater Manchester, I just say, send them to me and I'll give you my honest opinion. Because I just, I had a lot of help when I was first starting. And I think there's nothing worse than, you know, seeing someone who has these savings they've worked for all their life and they might, you know, work with a potential sourcing agent and buy a deal that just isn't going to work out. And I just really think that's, that's just not, not very ethical. So I'll always, you know, happily help people and give them advice and let them know if a, de- if a deal's a good deal or not. But through that, I get to see a lot of deals that are being sourced. And you are right. Some of them are good, obviously, but some of them are, they're just not, either they're not particularly strong now, or it's very easy to see that in the next two to five years, that person could come a bit stuck with that deal. And, you know, if the slightest legislation changes, that deal literally just falls and it doesn't work at all. And they could lose potentially quite a lot of money. Okay, so you're saying be, I think what you're saying is be a good person. Yeah. Is is, um, help people out apart from your deals. But what about when, okay, so so. I'm a sourcer, let's say I'm not, but let's say I am, and I'm like, oh, I get paid once the property completes. So my incentive is to sell the property no matter what, right? As in, mm. in terms of I need to get paid. How could you, especially people who are new in property who like maybe quit their job or maybe they're not getting paid much and like they need a deal or two to kind of, you know, live life. What advice would you give to people who are under that pressure of I need to make a sale? How do they balance that with selling a crap deal? 
so I would say you need to be out viewing a lot. The only way to find a really good quality deal that's going to be really suitable for yourself or someone else is you need to see a lot. And I think you've said this before, Tej, that you know, you might view like 50 houses and then you might only find, you know, one offer accepted. Mm. Um, so it's definitely all around kind of viewing as much as you can, always following up on the offers that you make. The latest deal that we're doing is a commercial unit and I offered on that last Christmas and then I um, followed it and it originally got rejected and then it's only in June this year that it's been accepted. So that's six months later and it's mm. because I kept following that up. And so yeah, always follow up. Um, and also um, speak to other, if, if you keep going, if you as a sourcer keep going to networking events and you meet a lot of people who are looking, so let's say your bank of investors or your database gets larger, then speak to other sources and because um, they might not have the right investor for that deal. And even though you're not getting the full um, sourcing fee, you're still, you know, you're still making a fee for doing relatively little work. Hmm. Okay. And then another question I have, which is, which is a good question for you, actually, because you're buying your, your properties yourself as well as sourcing. Mm. And you're, you're not going to source on a deal you wouldn't buy yourself. Why do sources, maybe you, know, you, you, you as well, of course, why do you choose to like sell on a deal instead of getting investment for it from, you know, angel investors, et cetera, et cetera? How do you personally balance, right, am I going to buy this and find investors? Like, I haven't got the funds, but, you know, crap, let me just offer, let me let me find an investor, let me buy it between, mm. let me source it on. When I say it isn't a deal that I would keep myself, I meant that it doesn't necessarily meet our ROI targets, but that doesn't mean that if I had an unlimited bank of money, I wouldn't then purchase that deal. It's almost like I just need to be selective. So, yes. for example, like, we've just sourced a six bed HMO in Stockport at a 21% ROI. That is a brilliant deal. And this, and now I wish I kept it because the property prices in the area have gone up <laughs> and this woman's actually going to make like 40%. But at the time I was, I was very strict with my ROI targets because this was kind of, you know, yeah, it was almost like towards the end, the start of the year, because we're doing the refurb now. And um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's more about balancing the fact that I, in terms of the funds, I need to make sure they're available for um, the ones that have the much larger ROI targets. Um, and equally, we're starting to look more now into kind of commercial developments. So it's kind of moving the focus away from that, moving the focus away from HMOs. However, I've still got a lot of keen HMO buyers. Okay. And so have you purchased HMOs yourself? You have, right? Yes. Yeah. So it, it, so a lot of people say like, oh, HMOs, it's saturated market. You know, everyone's got a HMO, like blah, 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 et cetera. Have you found like anything like that? Or are you, are you an advocate of it? If it's a high quality product, it's going to rent and it's going to be great. Yeah. So I guess I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'm a big advocate of HMOs in terms of, you know, if, if they work and they're bought in the, in a very good location and the high quality product is, you know, with, without a doubt, you need to offer that to get the higher rents. However, I guess my concerns with HMOs is generally the ones that we buy for ourselves, we will keep to that up to six bed mark 
and we refinance within um, within kind of bricks so bricks and mortar valuation. I don't try and kind of suck out as, as much money as I can um, in that end value, and it and that means that essentially if if anything changes, not just legislation wise, but if if I don't know down the road someone opens up like a much a much cheaper huge co living space that maybe offers a gym or whatever that might be, I can still sell that onto a regular buyer, a regular kind of first time buyer or family quite easily. Within that, I definitely think that HMOs are great for cash flow. However, I see a lot of people changing your kind of smaller residential houses to these very large kind of, you know, eight plus bed HMOs. And I guess my thoughts there are that if the market changes, how would I sell an eight bed house on a road that has all other two bed houses? So if you've got a buyer that's looking for a five bed house, they're probably going to, you know, be looking further out in the suburbs with lots of land, you know, bigger garden, a driveway. They're probably not going to buy a five bed house on a two bed street. Yeah. And that's an interesting point. I think it's easy to get caught up in the right. Let's do big HMOs, lots of, uh, lots of en suites, make it really sort of commercial. Mm. And, you know, of course they work and, and, you know, in the future they may still be here in 10, 15, 20 years, who knows? Uh, but of course it's kind of you're protecting your investment because you have another exit which is uh oh if something goes wrong this can be a house or you know or something that's a bit more residential to to be sold so i think and that's a really good point for people to consider like and in general consider your exits right yeah uh, so could you talk us through some figures of i don't know maybe the, the latest hmo that you've purchased yeah sure there's one, for example, that we're actually selling that we've that's going through conveyancing now. So this was a three bed house, a three bed semi detached house. So it means that naturally the downstairs and upstairs rooms are a bit larger. It's right by Warrington Central Station. It's got a back garden that offers kind of a driving space. So really, really perfect to turn into a HMO. And we converted it to a five bed with three en suites so just two people are sharing that other bathroom so the purchase for that was 124,000 our refurb was around 38 to 40k all in and then with stamp duty kind of the mortgage redemption fee that we that we're going to have to pay now now we've decided to sell it and kind of the fees to sell we're kind of all in for around 170k but what we're doing with originally we bought this to to retain long term and I was going to kind of refinance it and pull some equity out. But quite a lot of people are looking for HMOs that are already set up and ready to go in and around Greater Manchester. So there's a lot of kind of investors, particularly from Hong Kong that, that we speak to, who um who, you know, the, the markets buy property in Hong Kong is just you know, a crazy, crazy price. So they're really interested in investing in the UK and particularly Manchester. And they, you know, have very strict targets that are on yield. So this particular sourcing agent who sources for Hong Kong investors, their investors buy on kind of a 12% gross yield. So they have looked at the gross rental income of my HMO, which I think is around um, 2,300 or something a month, which makes it worth to them 225,000. So they've offered 225 and obviously we're all in for 170. So that's like a 55k profit for us. Yeah, so 55,000 profit. So we're obviously going to sell that one just because it seems like too good an offer to turn down. Wow. I mean, 
that's a nice bit of profit. And I think there's been a few people actually on the podcast who have spoken about like that in itself could be a strategy of just yeah. selling ready-made HMOs to overseas investors because as you demonstrated, there's a lot of money in it. So for people yeah. listening, you don't have to follow a normal sort of strategy. You can just like do do as Natalie's doing and find a strategy potentially within the the many different realms of property. So, you know, going back to when you start, go on. Just to point out that what I was saying before about the much larger HMAs, that's why generally they'll they'll always work in when you get it in exactly the right locations. So I know a lot of investors who, you know, their core focus are these large HMAs, but they're buying, um, you know, right by a key Metrolink stop. So they know that they'll always rent and they can always sell them um, as a performing asset to another investor. But I guess the riskier ones are people who are doing these much larger ones, I guess, a bit further out who maybe might struggle to fill it in the future. And if it's struggling to fill, then no one's probably going to buy that as a performing asset. Yeah. And, you know, going back to kind of the the start of your journey, I didn't hear you mention anywhere like a paid property course. I heard the free course and then I heard going to Danny to get mentorship or, or sort of training at the same time. What, so there's a lot of property courses out there. There's a lot of Facebook ads, a lot of people directing you towards them. What made you choose the one-on-one mentorship, which potentially could be more expensive than going to a property course, which most people kind of opt for? I guess I I figured out from going to the courses that the main kind of uh, benefit of the course is the mentorship that you get as part of that course. And I definitely, when I was doing that two or three months completely on my own at the beginning, I learned so much just by you know, taking action and going out and experiencing it every day myself. And so by having a private mentor, it means that you, you're learning a lot more through practice and speaking to someone rather than spending a lot of time kind of in seminars and in, yeah, like, you know, meetings in, in boardrooms. And I think that's true with any job. You know, even when I was in marketing, when people would start in marketing and we'd have kind of marketing execs starting, it's, it's all well and good how much you can kind of teach them, but they really learn just from starting and from starting to plan campaigns and working with clients. Um, And it's the same in any industry, I think. So the reason I would always do a private mentor is that you'll immediately be actually doing the action yourself. Hmm. Okay, solid advice. And then that kind of leads me to my next question, which is the reality of property investing. So Again, from courses and and from certain people on social media, property investment it can be painted as a sort of easier, get rich quick thing. But there, again, there are a lot of courses and people who then show the reality and the authenticity of it. What are your sort of views on like the reality of property investing versus what people might think it's like? Yeah, so it's all I'd say is that it is it's very very. There are lots of challenges every single day, and I do think that depending on where you live, you know, finding deals it takes a, a long time to kind of almost kind of nurse your um, the offers that you're making. So it isn't a case that you're going to go out one day, look in your local town centre, and suddenly find a deal. You know, it can take a quite a long time. And then even when you get that offer accepted, you know, the conveyancing process, as we all know, can oh, take God. quite a while and be quite Lord. painful. Yep. So it's it's definitely not a get rich quick. Each each deal takes always takes longer than you think it's going to take. But at the same time, it like I just love it. I love the practicalities. 
of property. You know, when you see the end result from when you first started and what you've learned along the way, you know, with every deal, even when I'm doing like, you know, our last four bed HMO is, you know, I learned so many things there that I didn't even come across in, in kind of maybe our Warrington one or whatever that might be. So you are constantly learning every day. But I would say, yes, yeah, I guess to new people starting, it's a long journey. And that's exactly what kind of my mentor Danny says, you know, he's 10 years in now and, you know, extremely successful, but he's a big, a big preacher of that, that it's definitely not a get rich quick. It's a long journey. And if it is, if you are doing something expecting to get rich quick, you know, the downside of that could potentially be that you've maybe picked a strategy that could potentially not work long term, or it might be, you know, potentially too good to be true. Yeah. And I, I think to add to that, the the pain of conveyancing. If you haven't bought a house oh, yet, gosh. Lord, be ready for that. You need patience. You need to be. You need to be. You need the stoicism of a statue to deal with that. But I think that is a really important point to pull out of there, as as long as with the other points you made. Because if, if someone, if you want to quit your job and go into property, you need to think right. If my strategy is say rent to rent, then okay, I could have income coming in a bit quicker. Things could move quicker. But if my strategy is buy to let, so they're going to give you about two fifty per month net, give or take wherever you are in the UK. Mm-hmm. That could take X many months in conveyancing, refurb, letting, money coming in. So actually, if you're thinking of quitting your job, if you're thinking of like going into property, like make sure you have enough income to cover the slow, slow processes that this industry is just littered with because you know yes you you may suddenly you know buy four buy to lets in a month but mm. the actual rental from them even a hmo which takes much longer to refurb is not going to come for a while so just you know speak to people like me like natalie who are, who are doing it and have been through that process to say oh how long should i actually you know warrant for in in my savings in in what i'm doing because you could go six months without even finding a deal like, I mean, you, hopefully you shouldn't, you should, probably wouldn't, but there is the possibility of that happening. So also... You, and I, I, I was just going to say, I think also um, when you're in that position where you really want to find a deal, I think that you you might get it kind of... I've, I've kind of really tried to train myself to not become very personally attached to deals. I've had a couple in the past where I, you know, you, you get that kind of emotional attachment. You can picture the end result in your head and picture, you know, the people living there and the rental income that you're going to make. And then if something comes up in conveyancing, you know, maybe there's a problem with the title or maybe something comes up in a survey that means it's not maybe as structurally sound. It almost because you desperately so want the deal to work at the beginning, you almost might overlook that and think, oh, well, it's okay because, um, you know, this deal is going to all work out in the end. And I think you always need to try and look at deals very, very objectively and not, I guess, rush into them. Absolutely. And, and you know, like you said, it is tricky, especially at the beginning when you're like, you need a deal, you need a deal. If you're sourcing, you know, your clients are asking, where's the deals, where's the deals? It's easy to sort of, oh, you know, make the refurb a little bit cheaper or just yeah. hope that something won't go wrong, but everything will go wrong. So, um, you know, be careful with things like that. And and at the beginning, you were, work, well, you, know, you still are doing property part-time with your other job. Have you got any tips or tricks for people who want to, you know, work in property part-time? How can they balance this with their life, with, with their job and, and everything else? So I guess if you want to do it part time, you know, I always I generally work on the weekends in property as well. So it's kind of, you know, Saturdays, you can still do viewings apart from commercial buildings. Most residential viewings you can still do on Saturday. So I would say 
always you know count Saturday as a, as a viewing day in addition to, to the others because if you're first starting that's when you're going to be viewing the most to try and get those first deals I would always say within those viewing days I mean I've I've had this a million times where it gets cancelled in the morning or it gets cancelled the day before um, so structure your days that you know if your viewings get cancelled you've got a really clear to-do list because all of those days when you're doing property you need to make sure it's as productive as possible and if a meeting gets cancelled or a viewing you need to make sure you know that hour is filled um, with something else that's that's going to help you move forward and help you progress and um, don't rely on the fact that if you've got five viewings booked in, in a day those five viewings are actually going to happen because um, they can't get cancelled last minute a lot so yes yeah, I think it's a lot of it is about planning your time I always am very open with the build teams that I'm working with, any investors that I'm working with um, and surveyors, I'll always say exactly, you know, what days I'm in, I'm in property, what days I'm not. And then every lunchtime in my current job, obviously, I'll, I'll go back and check emails and make calls. I'll generally speak to people at like 8am, like, you know, before I go to my marketing job, um, if it's something that I need to be checking in on a daily basis. And it's just, it's all about being organised. There's always going to be things that come up where... It is, you know, one one thing is going to interrupt the other. So I've been, you know, at a marketing meeting before and I've had, I was at, oh yeah, I was at an all day conference once for marketing and I went out and I had like five missed calls from, it was actually the builder who was doing this Warrington one. And then I called him, I oh, know, then I checked my, then he didn't answer, I checked my voicemail and all I could hear was the word gas leak. And I immediately <laughs> thought, oh God, there's a gas leak in my heart, in, in the house and that's really dangerous. Is is everyone out? What do I do about the neighbours? I've never come across this before. So I immediately started panicking and then they're calling everyone back into this conference. And um, so I just had to um, basically say, I need to communicate with you via WhatsApp, but just please confirm if this is sorted or two if this is a really you know urgent matter and he came back and he said no don't worry like this, these things happen all the time we've cut off the gas this is what we're going to do so it's just about being very clear in communication with people and if you can't speak to them on the phone just working out quite quickly is this urgent or is it not urgent because if it is urgent you probably need to speak to them right then and there but most things aren't aren't, aren't that urgent <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I think, you know, at the beginning, you hear something like gas leak, you think yeah. uh, this never ends well in the movies. Yeah, I know. Like, what is this going to be? But, and I guess having the right team around you to prioritise, because, you know, some builders would lose their, sh you know, and, oh, no, when you get, you know, when you get fixed, it's going to blow up. And then some would be like, listen, it's okay. It's not a problem. We'll sort yeah. this out. So, but that's learning, right? Like, you're going to have people, you know, throughout the process that, are not doing it to your standard and cause problems and cause issues. But no matter how much someone tells you, I think you have to sort of go through that sometimes to learn um, and to improve your process. Now, in your property area, in terms of your geography, what's the what's the market like? Like, are you seeing changes? Are you seeing people, I don't know, holding back because of Brexit, or is it kind of business as usual? I mean, well, Manchester in general has just changed so much especially since I was little you know moving back here and, and going into property I actually feel really lucky that this is this is kind of where I'm from and when you go into the city centre there are 
a huge amount of skyscrapers everywhere being built, a huge amount of building works being done. Um, and that is obviously having a ripple effect on the wider cities. So it's a brilliant place to be a part of. However, it's also well known to be an excellent investment area too. Everyone that I'm meeting at uh, networking events, anyone that I'm getting introduced to, they're all saying, oh, you know, I'm a London investor, but now I'm looking to look out of London and Manchester is my first choice. Overseas investors, generally the ones that I speak to are saying we're looking in Manchester first and then we're going to look in, you know, other cities like Leeds or Liverpool. So because of that, there's a lot of competition and that is also driving the prices up. So, for example, like this six bed HMO in Stockport I mentioned um, that I sourced on. There, the property prices just in that area in seven months, the deep, like the done at value that that we projected has increased already by around 30k. Wow. Which is huge to this investor's ROI, absolutely massive. So I guess, yeah, Manchester is very exciting, but, and a really good place to be located. However, at the same time, there is that lo- a lot of competition. And in terms of your point about Brexit, I'm seeing a lot less instructions at the moment i don't know if you're seeing that in your areas yeah i mean the last you know what i, I totally forgot that brexit it was even happening um which is weird because all over the news but yeah i was and actually you've just made me realize because this month it's literally been the last two weeks like nothing worth viewing and i invest in like a, a an area that's like i don't know 50 miles wide, I think, and goes wow. up. So it's a, it's a big square mileage area. Mm. There's been literally nothing to view that's, you know, what we'd look for, you and I pretty much. There's the auctions catalogs have been boring. There's nothing mm. with holes in it, nothing falling through. It's just been very bit sensible, which makes me think that, yeah, maybe we're sort of clutching at straws to kind of sell stuff. And I'm talking across 110 lots at two different auctions it's been dull. So yeah, yeah m- maybe Brexit is the reason actually. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah. Which, and I guess within, when you have, you know, lower instructions and there's a lot more competition, like I know, for example, now, if I see a, um, let's say a three bed rundown house with two big reception rooms right by Stockport train station. I know that if I go and view that, there's going to be like 50 other investors who are viewing it that week. Um, A lot of those investors could have lower ROI targets than me. So they're going to offer more. Similarly, a lot of quite a few, quite a lot of those investors might be trade themselves. So in terms of the refurb, their costs could potentially be, you know, lower than mine. So I'm quite realistic in that if I will, I'll only go and I'll put my name down a number for those deals. Um, I'm, I'm quite close with a lot of the agents. So I'll always follow up and see what it's sold for. And then I'll basically always follow up because what you'll find is that if a property deal falls down because, you know, the seller pulls out or whatever, if you get in there first and you view it the next day and make, you know, a solid offer with your proof of funds, you're much more likely to kind of get the price that you want than trying to outbid everyone at the beginning. Yeah. Okay, good. Solid advice. And is there a resource or platform or app or bit of technology that like you and your business just can't live without? 
So I'm not very tech savvy, um, which is quite funny because my husband's like a massive, he's a web developer and he's really, really into tech, massive tech fan. But mine is quite simply Wonderlist because I've got the property career and the marketing job. I've got a big to-do list for both of them. And there's a lot of things to always be thinking about. But Wonderlist just means you can really easily, it's basically a to-do list platform. And it means that you can really easily segregate all those to-dos into different folders. You know, people that you need to talk to, different projects that you're working on and every morning basically I'll, I'll I'll look at that and it's also quite quite rewarding when you're ticking everything off <laughs> and the little noise it makes as well I love it yeah um, it is a really good app so I I do I use Wonderlist notes I I kind of used to now I um I use Asana with the, with the little boards like Trello boards just to Oh, yeah. Visualize like, okay, where on earth is this project? What What's left to do? And then I, I have like a whiteboard, old school, uh, for like my daily tasks. It, something about writing. I don't know. A little bit old school there. But um, Natalie, we've reached almost the end of the podcast. Uh, what's left is the quickfire round. So are you ready for this? Yes. Right. What are the biggest three mistakes that you have made in property? So one, I touched on earlier, so getting too emotionally attached to deals. Two, not having everything tracked on emails as evidence when liaising with build teams. And three, probably overanalyzing deals too much and not not potentially just just, just going for them and then missing the chance because someone else has, has swooped in and made an offer. Mm-hmm. Love it. And then I guess sort of conversely to that, what are your top three tips for people who are new in property? So I've got four tips, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, one is, you know, following on from the above, have everything writing, in and writing and on emails when dealing with contractors. So, you know, any slight changes, even if you know how small they are, just always have that tracked. Two, I would always say get a mentor, even if you've just done a training course and the mentorships, you know, complete with that. I just, I'm really, really a big supporter in people getting, uh, getting a private mentor. Three, try and speak direct to a vendor when moving along conveyancing. So even ones that you've bought through an agent, I always try and get direct contact with the vendor because then you know exactly who is holding up. You know, is it their conveyancer? Is it your conveyancer? And it means that things just move on a lot, quick, a lot quicker. Then four is don't look at what other people are doing and directly copy. Deals take a while to get through. So, you know, 10 months later when your property is ready, it needs to be very different um, to theirs because things can change. Awesome. And then lastly, what are your top three goals for the future? And these could be personal, could be running a marathon or, or anything. I think more passive income. So we have, um, you know, we've done quite a few flips in the past couple of years. Um, obviously, we're selling this HMO now as a flip. So our, my objectives for the next few years are definitely to build up the more kind of retained portfolio, looking at more commercial deals. So we're doing our first one at the moment. So yeah, more more commercial um, developments. And three is working with more private investors. So at the moment, we've worked with kind of, you know, family, friends and, and things like that. But we're, we're now at the at the um, position where we can kind of open up that opportunities to to more people. Okay, awesome. Uh, Natalie, if people want to get a hold of you, to have a chat with you, to find out more about what you're doing or even to see what you're doing, how should they find you? 
Um, yes, I'm on Instagram. It is Nat Gascoigne Property. And then I've also got a website, which is Davies Property Limited, which is ltd.com. Uh, Amazing. I'll put these in the show notes so people can find you quickly. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the TED Talks podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Speak to you later. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.